have seen that meme a lot. I've I'd only seen Predator once before, and it, mm-hmm. about fifteen or twenty years ago. And so before the the image actually came up, I saw the two actors approaching each other, and like their shirts, and everyone's like, "Oh God, it's the muscly meme." <laughs> This is it. Oh my god. I found it. Pause it. I found the muscle me. <laughs> wow. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and in my younger days, I was known as the one-man Klaatu. <laughs> What's a Klaatu? That's that band that was thought to be the Beatles recording under a pseudonym. Oh. Yeah, in the 70s. Ah, right, right. Do you get it? I get it. Do you now. get the reference? Get, you get I it? Get All right, cool, 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 cool. Well, I'm co host Jeremy, and I'm excited that we're finally going to cover the solo record of Quiet Riot founding member and Ozzy Osbourne guitarist Randy Rhodes. <laughs> yeah, I, I had thought of trying to make an. Emmett Rhodes, Randy Rhodes connection, or like a Fender Rhodes connection. Who's Emmett Rhodes? <laughs> uh, oh, 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 I don't know. Is that his brother? Yeah, that's Randy's brother. You aren't, yo, you aren't joking. You really think we're doing a Randy <laughs> Rhodes record? <laughs> well, I don't blame you. I'm wishful glad. thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. I know Randy Rhodes' catalog well enough to know he does not have a solo record. Well, I am co-host peter cook and i am now the proud owner of a single person volkswagen i call it the one-man beetle oh (laughs) you and sean went down the same path wow you did that i did do that and i am told that we have a special guest here as well. Who is here? That would be me. I'm uh, Bo Gordon. Uh, I'm a musician, a DJ, a record collector, maybe the only person in the world uh, to have a Latin Grammy and an adult film award. Same year, no less. <laughs> Same year. Whoa, what an accomplishment. And I got to tell you, it's, it's hard to sit through a Klaatu joke uh, before you're introduced and stay silent, I tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could have laughed. Like that's it's allowed, no, I, I, especially with my jokes. I uh, I really appreciate your professionalism. This is like you're making this sound like a real podcast where the guest is miraculously silent until they introduce them. <laughs> Percussionists are really good at staying tacit for a long period of time until they're told not to. <laughs> that's really drilled into you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Bo, before we get into who you came to talk about? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I do. I love music. I'm involved in it professionally. Uh, I do event production. I've played in bands since I was a young a young lad, and have collected records just about as long. I connected with Sean recently through those avenues, and when we started talking about great cheap records, as one does, this was one that in, uh, invariably had come up in the conversation. You know, this is one that 
I had bought probably 10 copies of every time I see it for a few bucks and, and give it to somebody and uh, was all out of them when Sean told me he didn't have a copy. Uh, but eventually, you know, he found one and, um, you know, we're talking about it now. I love this album and I'm really excited to, uh, to dig into it. Found one for a dollar at the flea market just like three days ago. Perfect timing. Yeah, it's um, the added authenticity of um, the dollar score really adds yeah. to the mystique as well. Yeah, I paid $7 for my copy back in March of this year. Why don't we introduce what is this mysterious record? It's the Emmett Road self-title from 1970 on ABC Dunhill Records. As I'm sure we'll get into later, it's not to be confused with the Emmett Road solo record that came out on A&M the exact same year. We will get into that. What is the first track we're going to hear? We're starting with side one, track one, uh, maybe one of the greatest album openers I've ever heard. It's called Down With My Face On The Floor. Yes, this is a wonderful, beautiful song. So we'll talk about it more when we come back. edgy guitar tone going on there that lead work that was pretty cool but i'm gonna come right out of the gates and say i'm pretty undecided on this album currently wow which is not entirely a surprise to me jeremy is a not a known beetle hater but he's he's notoriously beetles indifferent true and this this is obviously very beetly yeah i know you, you could make the argument that emmett does stand apart and has created his own thing that is separate from the Beatles, but it would be hard to ignore the Beatles and especially the Paul McCartney comparisons, which is why many people have called him the one man Beatles because he's in fact playing every instrument on this record. Oh, that's impressive. I didn't even know that. 
it, it seems, you know, somewhat inescapable, you know, the comparisons to the Beatles, to Paul McCartney specifically. And I, I don't think it does him a ton of favors, you know. I think that his music is great on its own merits, regardless of how much it might sound like the Beatles. Um, I think that something that's really important, just in general, though, is like how great, like it seems like a lot of the people that love Emmett Rhodes, uh, they think that there was this potential for hits that never happened, you know, that his stuff was as good or better than the stuff Paul McCartney was doing and it never got its due. And I think that this song makes the best case for it. So that being said, I don't know how much the rest of the record is going to change your opinion on it. Yeah, I mean, my possession is admittedly indefensible. I really like Harry Nilsson, who also sounds a lot like the Beatles and also has his own, like, I can tell that this is not like a Beatles ripoff by any means. And there's like good songs going on underneath. It's just hard for me to get past the parallels my ears hear. Sure. I think one of the most impressive things about the record might necessitate some more information about it. You know, like like Sean said, it, it's done totally by one person. It was recorded by one person, and it was done at a time when there weren't many people that were doing that, and you aren't really allowed to do that. Yeah. I think it was admirable in that way, if not any other. I saw that they couldn't, there were, due to some industry standard, they could not actually display on the cover that it was recorded in a home studio. Right. You know, from the best of my understanding, it would be that there was some sort of contract or relationship between the record label and the musician's union. And so the fact that he employed no musicians from the union on that record would have been a really large red flag. So he was unable to advertise that. From what I've heard, that was supposed to be a central part of marketing the record. He wanted to call the record home cooking and really lay into the fact, the really impressive fact that he had done it all himself, but was unable to. And the concession that he was able to get was that he etched a scroll into the dead wax of of the record that says recorded at home that you can only see if you kind of hold it up to the light. It does have a particularly cool dead wax etching. If people are not familiar, that is the space between the last playable grooves with the song and the label. Oftentimes there's some etchings in there that are usually just to uh, say what pressing plant the record was made at and the label that put it out, etc. And, you know, maybe the person that mastered it. But he has like little banners etched into the side that are kind of cool and something you don't often see in records. Yeah, I'm looking at those right now. <laughs> <laughs> the The thing for me, like... Yes, recording an album of this quality as a one-man band is very impressive, but the thing that really kind of blew my mind is that he only started playing melodic instruments like three years before this record. He was a drummer before that, and then just like became a songwriter by writing complete songs in his head, and then taught himself to play guitar and piano so that he could get the songs from his head into the real world. So just a natural. Complete natural. That is incredible. I actually didn't know that. That being said, the drums and the percussion on this record are so good that it doesn't surprise me. He has a long history as a drummer. You know, not only are the drums like great takes, they sound great and are recorded really well, but then you've got some of just like the tightest tambourine playing in the world. Anybody who's tried to record a tambourine onto their own track for the first time, especially if that was to a tape machine, knows how frustrating and difficult that can be. And he nails it on this album. Yeah, people think the tambourine is simple, but there's more to it, especially recording it. (laughs) 
Absolutely. I mean, he's he's not playing Jack Ashford type tambourine or anything, but he's really he's really on beat there. Yeah, and I think the fact that he's a drummer primarily before this kind of explains some of his songwriting style and just how rhythmic a lot of this record is, especially for, you know, essentially a kind of bubblegum pop record, power pop record. Like there's a lot of interesting rhythm happening. That was kind of like when I went to try and make notes listening to the songs that we selected for this, the thing that kept coming up to me was like, these sound like Beatles songs, but I've never heard a Beatles song that was this funky. You know, they just don't exist. And I think a part of that is just like being American and being like around that scene uh, and that community and having access to a lot of the same equipment, but it goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's elements of it that remind me of some some more funky stuff. I mean, I, I imagine he had to be at least a little bit influenced by Sly and the Family Stone around this time period because literally every musician was. <laughs> Absolutely. It is interesting to think about like temporally and geographically what was going on in Southern California, in California in 1970 at the same time. I mean, what an incredible tapestry of influence to be drawing from too. Yeah. And then, you know, the whole thing of him being from California and then other elements of his story that we'll get into. There's a lot of John Fogarty parallels who we recently did the two episode deep dive on, you know, the one man band approach on these solo records and a few other things people will probably be able to notice throughout. Gotta say this sounds a lot more like California than Fogarty though. Yeah, not stylistically, but, you know, some elements of his story, you'll be able to pick out the parallels. I was just taking a, a jab at Fogarty's uh, folk <laughs> yeah. Apparently, Jeremy still isn't over getting fooled about yeah. uh, the whole New Orleans. Still holding on to that hurt. Bayou vibe. Yeah. I'm still there myself, man. I didn't know that until, I don't know, two years ago. Oh, yeah. So this you're still really working through a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know what stage of grief I'm in, but not the end one. (laughs) There needs to be a support group for this. But to be fair, I don't think Fogarty is either. So, like, the timeline on that may be protracted. (laughs) Good point. Good point. I wonder if I get a baseball shaped, uh, baseball bat shaped guitar, if that'll help me get over it faster. (laughs) I think your therapist would say yes. Your therapist would say yes. Mm hmm. Well, so Peter, what's your familiarity with Emmett Rhodes? You said you just bought this record this year. Had you heard it before that? Well, I'd heard some of the songs on it before. He started creeping up in my digital music world in the last few years. I think on Spotify, he would get played after like an album was done playing. I'd be listening to something like Badfinger, and then that would end, and Mm. Emmett Rhodes would come on. And I'm like, who's this guy? And I assumed that he was some really obscure, like, you know, maybe someone that had even recorded music back then and it hadn't been released. So I was very surprised. I really liked his songs, but I was very surprised when I was at Three Pillars Music in Benton Harbor back in March and saw this album for $7. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is, yeah, this is on Dunhill ABC. Uh, Yeah, okay, apparently this had some exposure in its time. And uh, yeah, it turns out it it sold a lot more than I ever realized or would have guessed. Um, But I really didn't know a whole lot about who he was at all until looking into him a little bit for this episode. But great songs. Yeah, I, you know, I had heard a couple of these songs before they were familiar once I put the record on. 
and I've seen this record, you know, many times throughout my career of record selling, bought and sold it plenty of times, but I don't think I'd ever actually played the whole thing through until Bo said that this was going to be his pick for an episode. I think for the longest time, I just assumed it was like maybe a kind of slightly boring folk record by simply judging it by the album cover. But yeah, I mean, I could also see how if you just heard a few of these songs out of context and didn't know anything about it, you could easily be convinced that this is some kind of lost holy grail of pop music. You know, the songs are that good. Yeah, I just I've never really heard anyone bring him up either. It's never like, oh, have you ever checked out Emmett Rhodes? I don't recall ever having that conversation. Well, you know, a lot of times I'm that guy. If you've ever run into somebody that was that guy, most of the time it was probably me. (laughs) There's, you know, when it comes to Emmett Rhodes' acolytes, I think it's me and the strange Italian man who made the one-man Beatles documentary. This seems to be uh, pretty universally reviled. (laughs) But yeah, it's the type of thing that I try to give that record away every time I see it. You know, I buy it every time I get it for a dollar and give it away to somebody who I think needs it. I've paid up to $8, actually, one more than seven for this record, a really clean copy. I eventually got, I think, all of his records except for one. And yeah, I think it's a pretty small club of people who really care that deeply about it. (laughs) (laughs) I should probably state for the record here that, you know, if you were to take all of the records that we've selected for episodes and categorize them into different levels of difficulty to find this one would probably technically be in the the intermediate difficulty i would say like there are copies out there on the cheap but if you want to go and buy one on discogs you're going to be probably spending at least like 20 bucks for this record so it's it's not always cheap and if a record store is you know one of the few that knows how good emmett Rhodes is they might put it at the real value but uh, it's overlooked there's not a ton of people that know about this guy as we have stated well it's cool that we get to talk about him and i'm excited to learn more i only did a little bit of skimming around in advance but do we want to play another selection before we say more yes we do we're gonna hear the song somebody made for me which is side a track two. Oh, we're just gonna go right in order here it's a serious one-two punch really it seriously is yes <laughs> Someone's special just for me Somewhere someone's special must be Somewhere someone's special just for me Somewhere someone's special must be Somebody made fun Searching all my life 
Yeah, I mean, listening to that track, if you didn't get it on the first one, I think you'll be really struck with the similarities to Paul McCartney there. And I think this album coming out in 1970, that's an interesting time to be comparing this guy directly to Paul McCartney, somebody who is facing maybe a crisis of identity, a crisis of artistry, and has just put out McCartney, the the self-titled solo record, which I think in a lot of ways is full of half-finished, unfinished ideas, you know, very White Album-esque. Um, looking at this record, you get, you know, from the piano sounds to the bass sounds to, um, you know, everything that they're doing, it, it just seems like total McCartney worship, but he's doing it better than McCartney is doing it even at that same time. Yeah, because that's the year, 1970 is the year the Beatles officially break up. And that, like you said, that McCartney's solo debut comes out and it's, it's, there's a lot of great ideas in there, but it's very half-baked. And here's Emmett. It's a, it's a full record. Sure. Totally. You know, Teddy Boy is like a great half of a song. You know, it's a great idea for a song, but it never got finished. Whereas these arrangements are a hundred percent airtight. You know, the guitar solos are melodies you could sing, you know, and just as far as like the level of effort and care and all of that that gets put into it, it's not even comparable between those two records. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he put nine months of working basically every day into making this record. So yeah, he, he wasn't trying to put out any half-assed songs. Like, they needed to be perfect and complete if he was going to put them on an album. That's the beauty of a home studio. You can just keep cranking away at it, and you're not... Uh limited by your budget or your label or whatever so that's cool sure for better or for worse you didn't have anybody to argue with you know whether it's a bandmate or a producer or anybody along that process all right you guys want to learn who emmett rhodes is and how he got to make this wonderful pop record yep let's do it our story begins when he was born on february 25th 1950 in decatur illinois which makes him one year younger than Ric Flair. <laughs> cool. No, no one's going to give me a woo for Ric Flair. I don't no. know who that Every is. Single person. Wait, really, Peter? Oh my God. No. The Whoa. Nature Boy? Come on. The wrestler? No. <laughs> Come on. I don't know wrestling. <laughs> he invented drip. Well, you you can ask Migos. I know who Andy Kaufman is. Oh. All right, well, you got some YouTube research to do after this How do you even explain who Ric Flair is to somebody, just in a sentence? I'm not even a wrestling fan. I know who Ric Flair is. Come on. Well. Anyway. (laughs) If cocaine could become sentient, Ric Flair would be a pretty good example. Yes. Ah, dead on. (laughs) I know who Ric Flair is now. All right, cool. Now we can move on to the Emmett Rhodes bio, now that we've nailed down Ric Flair. Okay, so he was born in Decatur, Illinois, and when he was five years old, his family moved to L.A., so this is 1955. He ended up actually going to school with Debbie Harry and lived in the same neighborhood as the Beach Boys. Um, He wasn't close with them. He said, like, well, he was a freshman. The Beach Boys were, you know, like seniors kind of thing. So he saw him around and was aware of them. Interesting upbringing. It's always funny when these artists have 
such close associations to other legendary famous people from you know before it all happened maybe i'm getting too far ahead with this comment but interesting that two troubled geniuses would have gone to school together emmett rhodes and mike yeah. love <laughs> <laughs> good Got one him. you dunked it <laughs> So uh, Emmett began playing drums. That was his first instrument, as we said. He took drum lessons and began playing as a child. And then he started his first band when he was about 14. They were called the Emeralds. E-M-E-R-A-L-S. Is that a play on his name? <laughs> um, I don't know if it was intended to be a play on his name. I know that he had a green drum kit to be in the Emeralds. They eventually, about a year later in 1965, changed their name to the Palace Guard after getting signed to the local label Orange Empire Records, who did not do a whole lot from what I could tell. The Palace Guard is interesting because they're perhaps one of the most blatant ripoffs or capitalizations of the British invasion that I've ever seen. I mean, they had the absolute stereotypical British invasion bubblegum pop sound, and they even went so far as to have matching uniforms that were supposed to look like British military dress uniforms. Yeah, just a complete going with what was popular in the mid-60s with, you know, the, the rock and roll sweeping the nation. One thing I think we should think about in general when you when you think about just like Emmett Rhodes's career is how much it parallels kind of just like the history of American rock and roll in general, you know, especially if you want to compare him to the Beatles, you know, um, being in Southern California in the mid-60s playing in teen bands like in many ways, this dude is being a part of all of these trends for a decade or more. Yeah, and as we talked about in the John Fogarty episode, I mean, it, what his perspective was is that as soon as the Beatles came out, it was like an overnight change in youth culture. Suddenly, everyone wanted to be in a band and be like the Beatles, and the, the whole thing just seemed to happen overnight. And that was a... It was a huge unexpected change in just the music industry and how things operated. These labels were scrambling to figure out how to get these young rock and roll bands and make money off it without really knowing what to do with it. And Emmett was right there, a, a teenager coming up in the this whole storm of the sea change in music. Another So after the sorry. palace, go ahead. I was just going to say another great example of that that often gets brought up is uh, the rhythm section of ZZ Top meeting in a band where they impersonated the zombies for several months. Oh, wow. I had no idea about that one. Yeah, there's a great uh, there, there was, article about that. There was that like multiple right. bands impersonating the zombies during that period, right? They broke up and just like left this gap and a few bands tried to step up and capitalize off it by confusing people. Well, the only connection that I knew between those bands prior to now is that they both were found in the Z section. <laughs> <laughs> Peter's coming in with that deep knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Alphabetical. <laughs> All right. So after the palace guard, uh, they get noticed by A&M records and, I, it was a little unclear to me whether the members of the Palace Guard were signed or if they just signed Emmett and he put a new band together. But regardless, he started a new band called The Merry-Go-Round. They had some lineup changes initially and then settled on a consistent lineup. It put out one full length in 1967 and a handful of singles and then eventually broke up in 1969. The Merry-Go-Round record is really good, actually. It's a great example of him like coming into his own he was starting to do a lot more songwriting by this period as we said he's like just 
starting to teach himself how to use melodic instruments around this point and already taking over a lot of the songwriting responsibilities and kind of the unofficial band leader too. I checked out a couple tracks from that in prepping for this and yeah, really great mid to late 60s psych pop. Yeah, definitely. It's funny to think about somebody making like a conscious decision to to rebrand from like British invasion ripoff with like beef eater outfits to like getting into the lucrative bubblegum pop segment. <laughs> yeah, the the world of light psychedelia. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, but yeah, again, he's following the trends of pop music as best as he can to stay relevant. True. So as we said, uh, the merry-go-round broke up in 1969. However, they still owed A&M another record. And as Emmett was kind of the unofficial, at least, band leader, he took it upon himself to self-record some demos in order to fulfill the A&M contract. When he delivered the songs, the label told him that his contract was fulfilled and you know they were letting him go, but they were going to shelve the songs and not put them out. And that was the end of that for now. At this point... Emmett was stating that he was feeling like he was starting to get fed up with people in general. And I think that was part of the enticement of doing the one man band thing. I mean, it was like we said, it's supposed to be a selling point, but I think also Emmett didn't really work well with people and the whole one man band thing might've, uh, it might've been a few factors in that decision. It's important to, I think just spend some time thinking about how less than ideal his time in the record business has been already. Right. The merry-go-round has this hit, and then they rush an album with a bunch of songwriting demos, and then he does the second album that gets shelved, which again is very much demo quality. He's working with major labels, he's working with like members of the Wrecking Crew, still not really making much of a splash or really seeing much to show for it. I, I could see why he, he thinks he could do a better job for himself. True. Very true. So... In 1969, he is signed as a solo artist to ABC Dunhill. They give him, it's kind of like a trial contract at first, from what I can tell. They gave him a, a $5,000 advance towards recording an album. He used that money to purchase a four-track and installed it in his mom's backyard shed. And then, as we said, he took the next nine months to write and record the album. When he delivered it to A&M, they, uh, sorry, when they delivered it to ABC they agreed to release it and gave him a contract that required a new album every six months. And Emmett said that when he was given the contract, he obviously knew right away that this would be impossible for him to fulfill. He just took nine months to record the first record. It's not like it was going to happen any faster the second time. But at the, at that point, his manager basically just told him, sign it anyways. It's a good deal and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> Which always goes well in the music industry when you're signing contracts. Never turned out poorly for anybody. So they put out the first record. It's a decent hit. You know, it's not a smash hit, but it's selling pretty well. And people are excited about it. That's this album. Yeah, this this album that we're listening to today. It's successful enough that his previous label, A&M, grabs these demos that they had shelved and said, we're not going to be put out and decides to just capitalize off his little bit of success and releases an album under the name Emmett Rhodes, the American dream, obviously without any permission from Emmett himself. The effect this has is that it basically confuses the public two records out in the same year. One of them 
far lower quality than the other. And it kind of just effectively kills the momentum that he's got and the little bit of hype that he's got off this first record. Yeah, I was surprised to see that this album had charted. I had no idea. Like, you know, it, it was selling pretty decently. And, but that makes sense that you don't want to confuse your audience right out the gate <laughs> with your branding. And it sounds like that's what happened with this kind of overzealous move on the record company's part. Sure. Yeah. Imagine 50 years ago if I was into this record new and I told you guys to check it out and you went and bought you know, the A&M record and it had the songwriting demo for She's a Very Lovely Woman with a string quartet over it. <laughs> you wouldn't be very happy. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, oh, well, I guess he had some good songs on the first one, but he couldn't hang on the second record. I'm going to forget about this guy. Yeah, exactly. Now. You're eight, $8.98 cents in the hole now and 1970 bucks. Like, you're not going to be happy about that. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> so after the first six months of his contract with ABC Dunhill, he does not have a follow-up recorded. Stunned. Yes. And the label's response is to suspend all of his royalty payments and begin suing him for breach of contract. Cool. Yeah. Giant surprise. They didn't figure it out later. It just got really bad. I'm just imagining now like George Bluth, uh, George Bluth voice. I got the worst fucking lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's uh, like 19, 20, uh, you know, been signed to major labels like we said like in some from some angles things are going well but at the same time he's now being sued and broke and not even making money off this thing that he's dedicated almost a year of his life to creating it's unfortunate to say the least so despite all this emmett valiantly attempts to keep up with the schedule he's still spending every single day writing and recording just basically living in this shed in his mom's backyard trying to hang on to this contract he released a follow-up album called mirror in 1971 and then a third record farewell to paradise in 1973 Throughout this whole time, ABC Dunhill is continuing to sue him and still withholding royalties often, which results in that by 1973, Emmett is completely burnt out and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to the label that he is still signed to. And that probably made him like working with people more. <laughs> yeah, just a complete ball of sunshine after this experience. Yeah, so 1973, he effectively retires from being a musician, which thankfully ABC Dunhill stopped suing him because of that. However, they still owned his contract in perpetuity. So he had completely killed his love of songwriting from these three years of torture that he had put, my, put himself through. But even if he wanted to come back, he would just be re-entering the nightmare <laughs> that he had just left. So uh, no surprise, he went almost, he went over four decades without releasing another LP after his third album in 1973. Oh, so he's got mystique then. Yeah. So over the next several decades, he said he would occasionally record or write down basic song ideas, but never actually completed a song for decades. He was dealing with some severe depression and possibly other mental illness issues during this time. He had a job for Electra Records, working as an engineer and producer up until the early 80s. And then after that, he supported himself by recording bands out of his garage studio. 
which I, I looked up some of his credits from this time period and he actually engineered and produced a couple like really valuable records the two that i wrote down for people to check out it's an artist called lord shepherd who did an album called evidence for real in 1981 it's kind of a spiritual jazz funk and has a one copy that sold for 500 dollars on discogs so worth checking out and then the other one is a 12 inch boogie funk single by an artist called take one the song is called i like the way it came out in 1983 and that's also a three-figure album that Emmett Rhodes was a part of later in life. That is wild. Yeah. So even though his albums aren't the uh, obscure, rare, three-figure gems that I assumed they were, he has recorded ones for others. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's out there if you want to really dig in. And then his story kind of wraps up. He He made several attempts in like the 90s and early 2000s to release a record and it never came together and then finally in 2016 he released his final album called rainbow ends it was mostly composed of old unfinished songs that he had finally dug out and completed there's a couple notable guest features on there as well from some recognizable musicians and it was a little bit of a comeback for him. He got, you know, he got some publicity. I think the record sold okay. Hopefully he got a couple shows out of it. And then sadly, July 19th, 2020, he passed away in his sleep. Yeah, just a couple of years ago. Not too long ago at all. So it's a, it's a tragic story in many ways, but it has somewhat of a happy ending, kind of. <laughs> Regardless, I'm glad he got his flowers before he before he passed. Yeah. You know, he at least was able to get a little bit of love there at the end and hopefully recognize his influence with future generations of musicians and record collectors. If you're going to get like a critical reappraisal where you make no money, at least you should be around to see it. Yeah, for real. <laughs> All right, let's hear another, let's hear another song. Shall we? We shall. All right, this is a, I guess, somewhat appropriately titled song for this part of the episode. It's called Live Till You Die. He did just that. He did exactly just that. I believe this is side B, track one. I have to say the things I feel.
love those airtight harmonies on the chorus there. Yeah, I like the production on this song as well. This is one of the songs that stuck out on this album is uh, better than the others to me. (laughs) Definitely in agreement there. Do you think if you spent more time with this, you might be able to start to see past the the beetle Oh, yeah. I listened to this for the first time earlier today. That's (laughs) part of why I'm in like an undecided state. I don't... have barely given this the time of day so far so well there's a there's a lot to explore here I, I could see you becoming a fan of this record after a few more plays after you sit with it for a while yeah definitely already like knowing that it was home recorded and it's him playing everything kind of like changes how i'm hearing it almost He's also, he's one of those guys where he, the more you get familiar with his story and get an idea of who he was and his personality and the struggles, it gives a lot of these songs more weight as well. Yeah, you can you can hear the, the tortured genius. <laughs> True. In some ways, I feel like there's that, that level of voyeurism that's similar to like, I don't know, like a, a Nick Drake or an Elliot Smith type person, you know, where you think mm. about their life in kind of this depressing lens that makes these songs seem very intimate and, and soul bearing. Yeah. And you know, he's one of those guys that would be really easy to write like a, a, a more friendly bio and portray him as just a wildly talented musician that didn't get the break he deserved. And in a perfect world, he'd be as big as the Beatles kind of thing. But I mean, stories like that are not, often as as true as they really are i was reminded of comparisons to the artist rodriguez who you know has some similar things put out two records was forgotten about by the industry until the documentary searching for a sugar man came out and he had this whole his career was revitalized for a minute but that documentary painted him as like you know again this tragic figure that just didn't get an even break despite trying his hardest when the real story is that Oftentimes these musicians that seemingly don't get a break are also very difficult to work with and probably burned as many of their own bridges as, you know, they were taken away from them by label executives or what have you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the the Rodriguez case, that documentary made it seem like he just had no idea that anyone out there liked his music at all. And he had done tours of Australia (laughs) in in the eighties and whatnot. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that people like this who are excellent songwriters would also be really good architects of their own mythology, you know, that they that they keep this story going in a way that's at least engaging in a narrative sense. Yeah, absolutely. So there's like a couple angles I wanted to just go over before we wrap this episode up. Just going with the, you know, the, the idea that he is obviously a very gifted musician and yet a tragic and oftentimes problematic figure. And there's like a few things that seem to contribute to this throughout his career. One thing I've heard him state in interviews is that when he was, you know, 14, 15 in his first bands, the palace guard, he said that he witnessed several of his underage band members being sexually abused by label executives at the time and didn't know how to respond to that. He's claimed that his father was severely physically abusive when he was a child. He said that 
you know, towards the end of his ABC Dunhill career, he felt that he had basically just been punished for simply trying to do the best that he could. And this thing that had been a simple love of just enjoying songwriting and music and doing this thing that came naturally to him suddenly was just this source of confusing grief and negative emotions. As I said, he seems to have been suffering from severe depression, possibly other mental illnesses. I don't know if they were ever diagnosed or not, or what the status of that was in interviews. He would repeatedly talk about how bad his depression was. He also, um, seems to have been pretty wildly homophobic or at the very least, just not PC, (laughs) I guess would be the lightest way to put it. But interviews with him are pretty cringy to listen to. He has some opinions that are not fun to hear. Yeah, he's gone on the record saying some pretty incredible things uh, that I don't believe are proven about Kurt Boddicher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want to look that up on your own time, have fun with that. Yeah, who was, sure. <laughs> yeah, Kurt Betcher was the, one of the mixed down engineers on this album, but he's like a sunshine pop legend. He, he had worked with the Association and the Millennium and Sagittarius. And yeah, I did, I did come across some of that too. I love that Sagittarius record. That's a record I'd buy for one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> if I could, if I could find that Millennium record, begin for one dollar. It's not going to happen, though. <laughs> one of the lighter claims that Emmett made about Kurt Betcher was that he said that he actually was very uninvolved in the mixdown process of this record that we're listening to, and that in fact. The other engineer listed on it, Keith Olson, he said was the real genius behind the mix down on the record. Don't know if that's true or not. Another pretty uh, large figure really involved. Uh, He he claimed that Kurt's main role in the record was just supplying the drugs for the sessions. He did wear a top hat all the time. I mean, if I was looking for drugs, I'd probably talk to the dude in the top hat. (laughs) It's a safe bet. (laughs) Yeah. In another interview, he seemed to be making claims that Kurt was coming on to him. And yes, that might be what you were alluding to, Bo. Yeah, he didn't say it anywhere near as nicely when I read it. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to repeat the way Emmett was wording it. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Emmett was married twice uh, after his ABC Dunhill career. He had, I think, kids from both relationships. Unfortunately, as of the 2010 interview that I listened to, he said he was not on speaking terms with any of them, which, you know. Who knows what the reasons were for that, but there, there's a lot of uh, evidence that Emmett was maybe not a nice person to be close with. I Just in the few portions of interviews I read, he seemed very biting and acerbic. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that like there's reason for that to be justified. I don't think that that's the correct response whatsoever, you know, but, but looking at the track record that he had and his experiences in the industry and um, probably the only reason anybody wanting to reach out to him would be to talk about that over and over again. I could see myself being put in a similar position. Yeah. I mean, he, he had a hard time. A lot of shit happened to him. (laughs) didn't catch an even break. And you know, who knows what other obstacles he had in front of him aside from that. It is really interesting to look at somebody who's such a real person, you know, through the same lens Mm -hmm. that we look at these people that we talk about in terms of mythology though. True. I mean, artists especially. So many of the great artists have been tortured, problematic figures. Absolutely. One of the things I was kind of thinking about, too, someone in an article I was reading made the comparison that 
Emmett was starting his solo recording career right around the same time that Elton John was. And apparently Elton John had a similar contract where he owed a record every six months. The only difference was Elton had producers and songwriters and a label behind him and a band that would help him. So he was able to keep up that schedule where it was, it was just an impossibility for Emmett. However, I do wonder, you know, he knew how hard it was going to be. Why did he stick with the one man band approach for three records? Why didn't he just like throw a band together or find some studio musicians or something to speed it up? Like, was it an intentional choice? Was it stubbornness or did he just not work well with other people? Who knows? It is a very good, good question. And something to think about, you know, like 1970 really was the age of the singer songwriter. So he's doing himself no favors by being compared to all of these singular musical figures who have not only just a team, whether it's musicians, producers, songwriters, what have you, but then also maybe the full weight of promotion from a label like Asylum that actually cares about singer songwriters rather than somebody who's giving him no effort and no money to try and promote this record. Yeah, what what if ABC Dunhill had like promoted his albums instead of suing him? Like would would that have had any effect? I wonder. <laughs> I can't really think about somebody who ABC did tons for other than what Ray Charles, you know? Yeah, like one of their most high profile acquisitions ever. <laughs> Steely Dan didn't have much good to say about them, but it's often overshadowed by how much they hated MCA where they went afterwards. Turns out there's just maybe not a lot of great people in the higher-ups of the music industry. Industry rule number 4080. Hot take, Sean. (laughs) Hot take. Record companies are shady. (laughs) Well, Sean, did you happen to come up with any recommended similar albums to this for our listeners? I sure did, and they're probably not going to surprise you guys too much. First one, a classic. Nilsson Schmilson, 1971, mm-hmm. another Beatles-obsessed solo artist that you really kind of can't help but make some, some some comparisons to when listening to Emmett Rhodes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, different directions, certainly not like the same style of interpretation of a Beatles influence, but a great record that you can pick up on the cheap, no less. Nilsson has really only become a bigger name, I feel like, in the last 10, 15 years as far as someone that people talk about a lot, you know, he was always around. People knew a few of his songs, but that record you used to be able to find super cheap. Uh, nowadays, you'll probably pay 10 to 20 bucks for it. Yeah, that's that documentary hype. Yeah. <laughs> Put out a good documentary and it's going to do something. The next one is a record that we've covered before. Buzzy Linhart's Pussycats Can Go Far from 1974. Another good example of a just kind of tortured genius songwriter that didn't get the credit he deserved. And you can find our episode on that in the feed. It's a good one to go back to. Yeah, featuring Darko the Super as our guest. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia's own. And my last suggestion is another one that is not quite a dollar record, but you might get lucky if you keep looking in another band that, a very tragic band as well, and one that got compared to the Beatles, it's Badfinger. Magic Christian Music, also from 1970, is an amazing record to pick up and dig into if you're into this kind of power pop stuff from this time period. A very close Beatles connection on that one, too. Yes, and a Nilsson connection, too. Another crazy, tragic story about getting screwed by the music business as well. Oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's a dark one, yeah. One, um, one other record that really um, hits a similar 
position for me. I don't even know if it was actually released when it was recorded. There was a group called the Aravons. They were a garage band from, I want to say, St. Louis, Missouri. And they won some sort of contest where they got to go record at Abbey Road in 1968-1969. They recorded a whole album's worth uh, of stuff, and I think it got shelved forever, and then there was like a CD reissue of it. But, you know, it's recorded, I think, in Abbey Road Studio 2, you know, with Ken Scott, Jeff Emmerich, all of those people. It sounds like a Beatles record, but it's just a garage band they shared an equipment closet with the Beatles there, and I think were the people that were responsible for stealing some of their stuff in the late 1960s. And that's a great listen if you like American Beatles worship stuff. Interesting. Nice. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Yeah, it's a it's a great record. Well, Bo, while you're giving recommendations, why don't you also give us some recommendations about where people can find out more about you or what you have going on? Sure, Absolutely. At work, I'm currently opening a club in South Philadelphia. I work with a company called Arts Noble Workshop. We are a nonprofit presenter of jazz and improvised music all over the city of Philadelphia. Uh, And we're currently moving into a physical space in the former Boot and Saddle on Broad and Ellsworth uh, in South Philly. It's going to be a beautiful place with live jazz, great bar selection, and a great hi-fi system playing records all day. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's supposed to open in the fall. I also DJ all of the time, a couple times a month in Philadelphia. So if you're interested in that stuff, you can look me up on Instagram. Um, that account name is Formidable Stacks. And if you want to keep in touch with me, I'm not a super hard person to get in touch with. So feel free to reach out. I love talking about music. Ooh, very cool. Excellent. Well, what do we want to send the people off on? We are going to end it with the song Promises I've Made, another favorite of mine, off this record. And this is side B, track two. Both sides have that great one-two punch when you drop the needle. Well, before we listen to that, we want to say to our listeners, this is the end of season three of I'd Buy That for a dollar. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, it crept right up on us, didn't it? It it did. I literally forgot to even mention it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we will be back October 4th with season four theme to come. We will announce what we're doing with the the opening episodes of that in the near future. But in the interim, we will be next week. We will be releasing a retrospective wrap up of season three. Just a little bonus episode. And then a little quickie. Yeah. And then uh, we will each be featuring a previous episode of the podcast uh, you know a little what do we call those reboots <laughs> yeah or we're gonna rewinds 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 where we go back and episodes we thought were super bomb we uh put in the feed again with a little intro just in case you missed it if you see it come up again you gotta listen now yeah if you skipped it get that you got that fomo from our rewinds <laughs> so yeah once again season four we'll be back october 4th but thank you so much for all the love and support throughout season three as always if you haven't checked out the patreon go over there and check it out patreon.com slash i'd buy that podcast we have nearly 30 bonus episodes available there at the five dollar and up tiers but let's let's get out of here this has been i'd buy that for a dollar my name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. My name is Sean Hartman. And my name is Bo Gordon. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. 
Thanks for coming on, Bo. Yeah, we look forward to having you on in season four at some point. I can't wait to talk about more dollar records. Hell yeah. Just as hard to know it's true.